how many of you have ever gone to have your eyes checked? Let me see your hands. Isn't that so much fun? Not, not, not just the dilation part. You know, that, that's really cool. You've got to wear the funky glasses the rest of the day because your eyeballs are about that big. But, but, it's, but it's always fun to me when they get to this point where they're trying to decide whether or not you need correction in your eyes. And they do this thing where they keep taking lenses and they go back and forth and back and forth. Can you see better out of one or out of two? Out of three? You got a witness? Or out of four? Out of five? And after you're all like, I don't know. It all looks blurry to me. Just kind of finally land on that lens where I can read a little bit. That would actually help. And, and it's really kind of that picture of what we go through in life because we're always viewing life through different lenses. Before we were saved, we were we were viewing life very selfishly. It's all about what is for me, what can I get, what can I take, uh, how, what's my impact. Uh, and then we get saved, and all of a sudden it changes, and now we start seeing things a little bit differently. We start seeing ourselves as being not just sinners, but sinners saved by grace. We see ourselves as people who are greatly loved by our God. We see ourselves as works in progress because God is working in us and through us. But over time, God keeps taking us back to a point where He wants us to grow in faith and maturity to where we now see things only through one lens. Not the lens of our culture, not the lens of our past or our family or our past church experience, but literally by the lens of the Word of God. And that's why it's so critical that we understand what He teaches us in His Word. Because there's so many lenses the, word wants, the world wants us to have. We're challenged on the left and the right. Like, like really, you, you can't believe that, can you? You really can't believe in a holy God, can you? You really can't believe that God is coming back for a chosen people or that He's coming back for only those who have faith in Him. And we were challenged to to understand, do we really believe what the Word of God says? And if we do, then what's it doing in us and through us? What impact are we having? This is our third week in a series called Worldview. And we've been sharing in, that, in this teaching that Jesus Himself said that when the eye is healthy, we see things clearly. But when the eye is not healthy, and we're looking through the wrong lens, then our whole body is full of darkness, and the light that we even think that we have is really darkness. And I really believe in the day we live in, there's so many that are living not in the purity of God's light, not seeing as God wants us to see, not understanding what God wants us to understand. And we need to come back to taking the Word of God and making it our own because God has provided the perfect lens. It needs no correction. It needs no revision. He has given us the Word of God. And the Word of God is the truth. Can I get an amen to that this morning? It's the truth we build our lives on, and it's so important that we do so. Because when we have a worldview that changes the world, it's not a worldview of an American. It's not a worldview of a Southerner. It's not a worldview of an international person. The worldview that changes the world is actually a biblical worldview. Where every day when we're asked our opinion, it's not, well, I think. It's what does the Word of God say? What does the Word God say about this? This morning, we're going to look through this lens, and we're going to look at the thought, if, does our worldview lead us to spiritual impact on a world that doesn't know Him? And if so, then how are we doing? There, there's a lot of thought today that when it comes to matters of the faith, you have yours, I have mine, let's just leave each other alone. I, I, it's, it's the coexist thought. It's the bumper sticker that says, can't we all just get along? Aren't we all just going to ultimately end up in the same place? Do we need to even worry about each other's eternal souls? And a lot of believers, unfortunately, a lot of Christians are starting to believe that and bring it in and say, well, then, okay, let's just, let's just do our thing, but let's don't worry about making an impact in the world. But the problem with that is, is it goes against the Word of God. 
In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 19, the, some of the last words of Jesus while he was on this earth, speaking to those who had come to know the Father through him, he said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We call it the Great Commission, right? It's something that we, we look at and say, God, that's, that, that's a command. There's a part in that we're supposed to play. But, Lord, help us to understand that part. And I'm so thankful that Jesus, when he came and was resurrected from the grave, he met with those same disciples. And in Acts 1-8, he, he gave them the secret of how that was going to be carried out. In Acts 1-8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth. I, I hope this is not news to some, but can I tell you that our goal, our goal in life as Christians is not to impress other Christians with our boldness, our holiness, our witness, or our doctrinal purity. The goal of our faith, the goal of our walk with God is to make disciples, to share the good news with those that are perishing, that are lost, that are far from God. And the interesting thing is we never stop sometimes and ask ourselves, how are we doing? Are we making a spiritual impact? Are we influencing our nation? Are we influencing the world? What is happening through us? There was a study done recently. Uh, actually, it's a little, little old, 2009, where, where they looked at, at America and they said, okay, for 20 years, what's happening in our nation? And over the 20-year period, 56 million people were added to the U.S. Census between 1989 and 2009. But during that same period, only 446,000 became active members of the local church. Let, let that sink in for just a second. That's not a very high percentage, is it? So when we look at it and we say, how are we doing? What's the spiritual impact we're making? We have to be honest with ourselves and say, eh, not so much. We've done a pretty good job of creating homogeneous churches, you know, that, that people are just like us. We look like each other. We act like each other. We dress like each other. And we've done a pretty good job of raising good kids, and we've done a pretty good job of sending missionaries into the world. But can I tell you, in our own nation, not so much. And I'm afraid it comes so often because when we think of spiritual impact or we think of spiritual influence, the immediate thought for a lot of believers is that concept of witness. And we have this wrong picture where we're thinking God is calling us to knock on doors on Saturday mornings where people should be sleeping in and still in their pajamas and saying, Hi, do you want to talk about where you're going for eternity? And we're like, no, I don't want to talk. I just want coffee right now. That's about it. Or we think about people stopping people in the mall or in the grocery store and slipping them a track and saying, hey, let me just talk to you about Jesus. And, and when we get that picture, what we do is, well, some break out in highs, but what most of us do is we sit back and say, well, surely somebody else can do that. But can I tell you that our biggest problem is not a lack of extroverts. Our biggest problem is not a lack of people who are willing to go knock on a door somewhere. Our biggest problems can be summed up in two things, and that is this. Number one, we've been sending the wrong message, and number two, we've lost the sense of urgency. And I want to spend some time here this morning about that. I really believe that we've come to a point where we are sending the wrong message. If you've ever studied communication or if you're a communicator in your work or your life, you always recognize there's three parts to any communication, right? There's the, there's the need to say. So, so you got this 
urgency. There's, there's something you're trying to communicate. Then there's what you say. And then there's the piece that I'm always very aware of, and that is what people actually hear. I think today it's, if we were to go out on the street and we ask the average person, what's a Christian? What, what does that mean to you? In our, in our southern culture, in our charlatan way, what, what is a Christian? What, is, what does a Christian look like? And in our current environment, they would probably say angry, judgmental, hypocritical. In fact, I think I would fall over if one of them said, oh, Christian, loving, serving, gracious. We are so thankful they're part of our community. You see, the problem with our message is not that we have a good message. The problem with our message is sometimes the way we are sending it. It seems like today, and be careful with this, but it seems like our primary goal as believers is to get non-believers to live, vote, and think like we do. To live, vote, and think like we do. But here's the difficulty with that. Anybody can do all those things and still not follow Jesus. They can do all those things and still not be saved. And without Jesus in the picture, all they do is become more moral pagans. And I'll explain that word in a minute because it sounds like a curse word. It's not. All they do is become more moral pagans because so often our message is obscured. The second thing I, I really see is that lack of urgency. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't expect non-Christians to buy that. I really don't. That's quite a concept that there's only one way. But I'm afraid in the world we live in right now that there are many Christians that don't buy this either. And because of that, there's this lack of urgency. And so instead of looking to lead people to know the Savior that changed our lives and gives us hope for both now and the future... We spend most of our time trying to get people to, to vote a certain way or we spend time getting laws passed or trying to get a coworker to clean up their lives, which are good things, but they're not the main thing. Let me ask you a real profound question this morning and this, just let this sink in for a second, all right? What good is it to be the most moral person in hell? What good is it? You see, we have a message that's good. We have a message that's life-giving. We have a message that's full of hope. We've got to remember that the message of the gospel is called good news because it tells us that we have a God who created us, who loved us, and gave us everything, but yet in our selfishness, man rebelled against God. And instead of God just saying, I've had enough, I don't want to deal with my creation, he sent his one and only son to, to go to the cross for our sins, provide a perfect sacrifice so that now by grace, not that we deserve, and by faith, our trusting in him, our sins are forgiven. And we have a relationship with God, not based on how good we are, but based on how great he is. It's good news. It's good news to recognize that God is saying, I want to adopt you into my family with full privileges, with full identity, with everything you ever desired to be coming in because now you are my son and my daughter. And I love you, and I want to see you grow and mature, and I want to see you blessed. We also recognize that part of our message is simply this, that if we give God our lives, we give him control, then he will come, and he is the one that changes us from the inside out. Christianity is not some self-help program. It's not some program like, a, like joining a gym that says if you only work harder, you'll get better. 
No, Christianity is saying, God, I cannot do this. But, Lord, when I give you the control of my life, Lord, your Holy Spirit comes inside of me, and you start working from the inside out. And the longer I trust you, God, the more I'm shaped into the image of my Creator. And the more I can bless others because, Lord, you have blessed me. Guys, we have good news. We have good news to share, but so much of our message and our methods focus on changing culture and changing people from the outside in. And our influence isn't what it should be because we've, we've gotten off message and we've lost the sense of urgency. You see, people face two big problems in their lives. If you're a follower of Christ, you face these two questions. And they're, they're simply this. The two biggest questions we all face or the problems we all face is, what am I going to do about my sin? When, when, you, when you talk to anybody, whether they are a believer in Christ or not, they all recognize there's things in their lives that aren't good. There's choices they've made, there's actions they've taken, there's thoughts they've thought that they know don't line up. And they recognize they've, they've seemed helpless to do anything about those. So they ask, what am I going to do with my sin? The second thing is this, where am I going to spend eternity? Where, where, where does this go? Where, where does this end? Is there something beyond? Can I tell you, church, God has called you and I in our biblical worldview to understand that we are here to make a spiritual impact. That we are here to make spiritual influence in people's lives. And to do that, there's three things the Scripture shows us we're going to look at and focus on this morning that really lead to that in our lives. And I want us to take some notes. I want you to kind of get this in your spirit this morning of what it means to have spiritual influence. Because the three things I'm going to share with you, here's the key. They all three have to be functioning at the same time. You can't just have one and not the others. Because if so, you're not making an impact. So here's what the Scripture says to us. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Give you a second to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter, beautiful letters he wrote to, uh, to the early church, uh, called to, to make that impact across the world. And he says in verses 11 and 12, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage, which wage war against your soul. Verse 12, Live such good lives, you could underline that, live such good lives among the pagans. Now, let's explain pagan, because doesn't that sound like a slur, you pagan? No, all a pagan is in the Word of God is someone that doesn't know God, okay? We were all pagans before we came to know Christ. It's not a slur, it's not a curse word, it's just a, a description, okay? He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits First thing we need, if we are going to have spiritual impact in our culture, in our day, is simply this. We need to live a good life. We need to live a good life. He says, live such good lives among them that even though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may say, I disagree with how you think, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits. You see, it's very hard to have influence when you lack morality and when you lack integrity in your lives. When your word can't be counted on, nobody listens to your word. When your life is so chaotic that there seems to be no consistency of belief system or trust, people do not live trusting your word. I mean, think about it. We all know hypocrites. I think if you've grown up in church or been around church, we all know hypocrites. We've all been hypocrites at various times. But we know what? We do not seek out a hypocrite and say, oh, let's go have coffee because I want you to share with me the secret to life. 
No, we're like, I don't want to be like them. I don't want to live that inconsistent life. Listen, we've got to live a life that speaks loudly. I don't know where I came across this. It's a phrase that I've, I, I really don't know where it began. But, it, but here's what it says. It says, I can't hear you because your life is speaking too loudly. I can't hear you because your actions are so all over the place. I can't hear the message you're trying to bring. So we need to live a good life. But, but here's something with that good life. Don't confuse a good life with a sheltered life. They're not the same. They're, they're not the same. They're, there's so much pressure, uh, it seems today, to live a sheltered life more than a good life. And people erroneously think that if I just, if I really want to have a testimony, if I really want to share the good news, if I really want to be someone that is a, a believer, then I need to shelter myself from anything that others do that seems worldly whatsoever. So what do we do? We go on social media and rant about uh, what the world celebrates uh, in different ways, and we, we get people to cheer us on that think just like we do because, after all, we have indignation. We make good excuses for not showing up at company gatherings when we might actually rub shoulders with, with people that need the, the news that God has placed in us. We play in and engage in only activities that are considered Christian, and by doing so, we isolate ourselves from the world. But can I tell you, there will be no impact if there's no contact, amen? So a sheltered life is not something that the, the world is looking for because what we consider worldly changes from time to time. Can I get a witness? Listen, when I grew up in the 60s, ladies, you wouldn't be here wearing pants today or makeup. Can I get a, oh, no. Those are some ugly days, I'm just telling you. I mean, you think about it. There are things in the past that were considered worldly that now are not, and I, it's just going to keep going and going. So if you're trying to build this little sheltered life about, about avoiding what is considered worldly, then you're going to end up like the Amish. How many have ever gone to see the Amish? What do you know about the Amish? Good food, amen? Yeah, you want some good food? Go up to Lancaster. There you go. Second thing, they live by a set of rules that most people cannot even relate to today at all. And they go, they, they, they're, they're just set aside, they're, they're different. And what happens is this, the world is not impressed by our own man-made rules to be separate. You see, morality and integrity impress people, but rigid man-made rules intrigue people. But let's be honest, we go and look at something like that just as if we were going to the zoo. And can I tell you, it's no different when we live a sheltered life. Oh, I can't hand out candy on certain holidays because people will think I'm a heathen. I, 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 can't, uh, I can't go to the Christmas party at work because, you know, I don't want to be associated with what goes on there. I, I, can't, uh, I can't talk to my neighbor over there because they listen to a different kind of music or they go to a different kind of whatever. And, and before long, we're, we're in this little sheltered bubble where we're saying, oh, God, just please come back because we want to be separate and holy when you get here, God. And to do that, Lord, we're just not going to let the world touch us. There's a problem with that. Jesus, when he walked this earth, didn't have a lot of problems with a lot of people. But there was one particular group he seemed to always have trouble with. They were called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the most, what they considered, righteous people of their day. And the word Pharisee actually means separated one. And their mindset was simply this. God has laws, but let's go a step further to prove our devotion. And when we do that, then we'll show the world how godly we are. And they're the ones that Jesus condemned. Because he says, you won't even lift a finger to help someone out of their darkness. You won't even lift a finger to help them out of their lost state. 
Can I tell you, church, if we want to live a good life, it's not a matter of sheltering ourselves, but loving our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, the American church has done a pretty decent job with the greatest commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The church has figured that out. We know how to handle worship service and have prayer meetings. We know how to have devotions. We know how to have discipleship and community groups. We're pretty good about loving God. But that second part of loving your neighbor as yourself, not so much. And really it stems because we don't understand what that even means. Because your neighbor doesn't mean the sweet lady that lives next to you that brings you cake. Your neighbor, according to God's Word, is someone who is very, very different than you. And we're going to talk about that next week, our worldview of our neighbors. But he says you've got to live a good life. And the second thing he says, if you really want spiritual impact, that good life then must lead to good deeds. Good deeds. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Good deeds. Probably in our vernacular now, we would call that acts of kindness. Doing that which others don't expect us to do, because that really is the nature of good deeds. It's not just doing what's expected, but it's doing what is unexpected, going beyond that to show people genuine practical love. Because here's the reality. You see, you can have great theology. You can be Bible man or Bible woman. You can have an answer for everything. You could go on Jeopardy and knock it out and win some money when they have biblical topics. But if you cannot live morally, and if you don't have an upstanding life, and if you don't have good deeds, nobody is going to be impressed with your knowledge. You see, Jesus didn't draw big crowds because he was a theologian. Think about this. Early in his ministry, people didn't flock out to the mountains because, hey, this guy, this guy is a great theologian. No, he ministered to their needs. He reached down and touched them in practical ways to open their hearts up that then and only then they were willing to listen to the truth of what he was proclaiming. You see, acts of kindness are very important in our, in our day and, and times. Acts of kindness silence critics. You know, all those Christians, they just like to gather on Sundays, they like to have a good time, and they like to just kind of shelter themselves from others, and they don't really make a difference. No. Acts of kindness silence our critics. In our country, there was a turn many years ago where once what the church did to relieve suffering, what the church did to heal the broken, what the church did to be salt and light on this earth, we now began to depend on the government to do those things. And we just pulled back into our buildings and said, oh, let us have a good time with people just like us until Jesus comes when the world is still hurting and broken. And guess what? Our government cannot fix a broken soul. Can I get a witness? I'm going to a meeting this week, University City uh, Community Partners. It is a business organization, but here's what they're saying to the church. We can touch people's physical needs. We can touch people's social needs, but only the church can touch people's spiritual needs. And for us to have a healthy community, we need everybody doing their part. That's the world saying, hey, you got a message, bring it. But do it in a way that is truth and is awareness of people. But here's the key about this, all right? People need to know why we do what we do. People need to know you're a Christian and that good deeds flow from your faith. 
Because the message and the act have to be tied together. Otherwise, they just think you work for Wachovia or Bank of America and you're trying to get your good deed points to make the company look good. But when you give out a cup of cold water, the Bible says you do it in the name of Jesus. Because you've got to tie your good works to your faith. There are a lot of people that want to do good things, but only when we tie to our faith does it make an impact beyond our benevolence. So we must have a good life. We must have good deeds. And finally this morning, we must have good answers. We must have good answers. 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 15 and 16, I butcher this every Sunday in closing prayer because it's, uh, the memorization was in King James, but I'm reading out of NIV today. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, in other words, no hypocrisy, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If I have a moral life, if I do good deeds, but I never speak up and share the good news, no one is impacted for the kingdom. You see, it takes all three. A good answer has right words, but it also must have a good attitude. You have to have both. Oh, we have lots of truth tellers. Just go on Facebook or, or Twitter, and it's very easy to see that we are just justified because we share truth, and we like people to praise us for that, and we have cheerleaders online. But gentleness and respect give power to truth. Gentleness and respect give power to truth. Listen, if all I have is truth but I don't have love, it profits me nothing and then it profits the world nothing at all. Now I'm just a stereotypical angry Christian. But the Bible says I need to be ready to give an answer to the hope that's within me. You say, well, Pastor Mike, that's easy for you. You study the Bible. You've gone to school. Can I tell you that having no answer sometimes is the best answer? There are some questions people ask that a good answer is really to say, I don't know. But you know what? I'm going to go research that and come back and we'll talk about it later. Because there are some things that people deal with that maybe we're not equipped to handle. But you know what? The Word of God is true and it speaks to every situation. And we just may need to go do a little more research. Because our goal is not to look smart. Our goal is always to help people move one step closer to a relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, the reason so many of us don't witness, the reason so many of us don't give a give message or an outward expression of who we are is we all think God's called us to close the deal. Well, if I can't close the deal and they don't get on their knees and proclaim Christ, then that's on me. No, it's not. It's not at all. There are times God says we're the ones that sow the seeds. There are other times we're the ones that water the seeds. There's other times we just come and encourage growth. There's other times we may actually bring the harvest, but we're not the ones that determine that. God is. And we've got to be people who are willing to give an answer to the hope that's within us. Why? Because people need to get closer to God. They need to come back to their Father, their Creator. You see, this morning, I, I really want us to focus on those three areas and ask ourselves, how are we doing? Am I, am I living a good life? Am I, am, I, am I doing good deeds? Do I have a good answer? Where, where, where I'm on that spectrum, and I think that really is the call this morning to us to say, look, we've got to recognize where we are in that place. But, but I don't want to leave us there. And I just want to very quickly, because I know this is such a loaded topic for so many, I just want very quickly 
Just, just some very practical points, all right? They're, they're going to come like bullet points. I'm not going to be reading Scripture, but I want you to, to hear them because some of you right now are thinking, oh, my gosh, I can't do this. Yeah, you can. But understand something. First of all, there are no magic bullets when it comes to leading other people to Christ. There's no magic bullets. But if I just use this track, or if I just go down the Roman road, or if I just memorize more, if I just pray more, then they'll, they'll all get saved. But there's this wonderful thing God gave every single one of us called a free will. And I can't convince anybody to become a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. But I can sure set the table, amen, and let God do his work. So we have to recognize there, there are no silver bullets. We can influence, but we cannot always bring them to truth. Remember, Jesus was even rejected in his own hometown. And he said, a prophet's without honor in his own town. He said, he said look, there's times people just aren't going to listen. That's on them. That's not on you. The second thing is this. It's impossible to have impact without contact. It's just impossible. It's impossible to have impact without contact. Listen, separation is not what God has called us to. When we separate, boycott, etc., all we do is impress ourselves with our passion, but we cut off our ability to impact. A little homework assignment for you. Go on Right Now Media or buy the book, either one, okay? And if you don't have Right Now Media, see me because every one of you, it's offered to you. But go on there, and there's a series called Thriving in Babylon, and it's the story of Daniel. And if you want to know what it is to live in an ungodly culture and still have a spiritual impact, we need to read his story and understand his life. Because, again, without contact, there's no impact. Thirdly, the test of influence is influence. There's no other way to test it. The test of influence is influence. So, in other words, show me the fruit. Where's the fruit in my life? God, show me the fruit. Lord, let me, let me see who am I impacting. Because it seems like we have two extremes when it comes to this. We have those that are the silent witness. Oh, well, I just live such an impressive life that if people just observe how I live, they will naturally come to know Jesus Christ. Hogwash. That's a nice way of saying that. Because guess what? We are all a bunch of goobers. And there are days our witness is not so worth watching. Doesn't work that way. Silent witness. I'm just going to live such a godly life. People are going to just know the Holy Spirit is in my life. They're going to fall on their face, and they're going to cry out to God every time I walk in the room. Mm-mm. Show me the fruit. Or there's the opposite, and that is the jerk for Jesus. I'm just going to be so obnoxious that every time people are around me, I'm just going to, like, pound on them until they finally submit and go just to make him go away. Can I say Jesus is Lord? Show me the fruit. See, the real question is who's moved closer to Jesus because of me? The test of influence is influence. Another thing, come and see is usually a whole lot more effective than shut up and listen. Come and see. It's the woman at the well. Come and see what he did for me. Come and see what God did in my life. Come and see how he changed me. It's not so much of having a salesman personality that we're trying to convince people to believe the way we do, but we're trying to introduce them to the one who's changed our lives. That's why we say at Hope, our first desire is for you to encounter God, not encounter Mike or encounter the music or encounter anything else, because it's only when you meet him that he changes your life. Fifth thing this morning is this, no one can argue with your story. Aren't you glad for that? No one can argue with your story. Listen, not everyone's a theologian, but all of us have a story to tell why we follow Jesus. And that's what the world needs to hear. My marriage is falling apart. A friend 
convinced me they'd buy me lunch if I went to church. And I there heard the words of life, and I gave my heart to Christ, and he saved my marriage. I was sick. I was lost. Whatever your story may be, can I tell you it's an interesting story? And people need to know why there's a hope inside of you. And they can argue against your beliefs. They can argue against your viewpoints of Scripture, but they cannot argue against your story. And finally this morning, please hear this. God wants his enemies won over, not wiped out. Hmm. Ezekiel 18, God said, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Whether whether am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Never forget, maybe you're here today and, 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 and you're all the stereotypes I've thrown out there, you're like checking the boxes like, yeah, I know that person all the way through. It's the reason I'm not a follower of Christ. But can I tell you something? We have a Heavenly Father that desires nothing more and nothing less than for you to know Him. And He reaches out with compassion and love, not because of anything you've done or, or any goodness He sees in you, but because you're His. He created you. And He loves you wants to know you and for you to know Him. And we live in a day where it seems like we are so divided in our thoughts that we are against so much that all it appears is that we serve an angry God. But probably the first verse that most believers ever heard clears it up. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I don't stand up here today as a self-righteous guy who's got it all together. There are days my life speaks well, and there's days my life doesn't. There's days that I want to do good things, and there's days that, you know what, it's like pulling teeth to get me to do something good. There's days I want to engage in conversation and have answers, and those days I just want to be left alone. And I say that because there's not a perfect Christian out there, you understand. But I also let the Holy Spirit examine my life and say, Lord, where am I in these areas, God? Is my life speaking so loudly in the wrong way nobody wants to hear what I have to say? Then God, help me. God, God, am I looking for opportunity to be a blessing to others in ways that are unexpected? Or God, am I just saying, let the world go away? And let me live in my little social media bubble where nobody can touch me. God, am I really willing to engage? Am I really willing to engage enough that I know your word and I know what you've done in my heart that I can give an answer? Because, guys, that's his desire for us. You see, this morning, as we look at the worldview of understanding that Scripture must guide our lives, it's not, it's not so that we can study the Scripture to prove ourselves intelligent or theologically correct. It's so that we study the Word of God that it impacts us so much that we actually live it out. Can I tell you something? We live in an area of our city, a great city in our nation. We live in an area of the world that is hungry. We live in an area of the world that's looking for answers. We live in an area of the world that has got so many messages going on, they don't know what truth is. And can I tell you, it's time for the church to rise up and be known not just for growing God 
really good kids, but known for making an impact so that others may know him. So here's what I want us to do today. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to close. And I told my wife, I'm sorry she can't be here today. She's not feeling well. I told her, I said, baby, it's not going to be an amen kind of day. No one's going to hug me on the way out and say, Pastor, that was an awesome word. Thank you. But sometimes truth just needs to hit us right here and hopefully right here. Because you see, you may be here and, and you're still battling that whole, do I trust God or not? Listen, the Word of God is true. It's clear. The Word of God is good. The, the gospel is good news. Christians have obscured it. We know that. We're trying to reclaim that. But it still leaves us with no excuse. Because the Bible says even the heavens declare there is a God. Even the beauty around us declares there is one who created us. And this morning, the Holy Spirit, who is part of the Godhead, is moving on your heart and your life. There's only one thing to do, and that is to acknowledge that you need a God. You need your Savior, and He is able to do what you can't in cleansing your sins and changing your life. So if that's you this morning, really the, the, the declaration of, of your life, we would pray would be one thing, and that is, I want to know Christ. Because every Sunday at Hope, I ask you, what is God saying to you and what are you going to do about it? And, and that's the only one thing. If you're far from God, that's the only answer is really, I want to come to know Him. Let me take one step closer. But for those of us who've been serving Him for a while and know the goodness of His grace, the Word of God sometimes has to shake us and wake us and say, look, remember why. Remember the purpose. Remember the goal. It's not to make other people live like, vote like, and think like you. It's so that others may know the King of kings and Lord of lords.